0: You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Ruth chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech whose name was Boaz. And Ruth... The Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to his reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, And at mealtime Boaz said to her come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine so she sat beside the reapers and as he passed and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over when she rose to glean Boaz instructed his young men saying let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvests. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. So we've been uh, working last week, we started the narrative of the gospel, not the gospel of Ruth, of the book of Ruth. And just this incredible story of uh, Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion, leaving Bethlehem, which means land of bread, because there's famine, and, and going to Moab. Uh, In the hopes of having their life turn around, uh, surviving while there's a famine back in Bethlehem. And turns out, uh, actually what they find there is death. Elimelech dies, uh, Malon dies, Kelion dies. The two sons do not die before they take Moabite wives. And so by the end of chapter 1, we're left with Naomi and these two daughters, Orpah and Ruth. And Naomi, as they hear bread has once again, the harvest is going well. Back in Bethlehem, Naomi decides to return home. Orpah and Ruth say, we want to come with you. But Naomi is able to talk Orpah out of it. She goes back, returns to Moab, and Ruth, in contrast to Orpah, Ruth, the Bible says, clings to Naomi. She confesses to Naomi, where you live, I will live. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people, Ruth says, and your God will be my God. And so we start off chapter 2 finding that Ruth has made this incredible decision. She has valued life with Yahweh and nothing else in Bethlehem as superior to life with everything in Moab but no Yahweh, no God. And she decides, I'm going to go with God, and though it may not produce for me all of the benefit that I would have back in my hometown of Moab, she confesses that Naomi, your God, will be my God. And she goes to Bethlehem. And so then it opens up chapter 2, we find them there in Bethlehem. And what are they now going to do? And one of the big questions we have to kind of ask at the, at the, during this narrative and, and ask of ourselves just as life in general, how big is the God that you serve? How in charge is he really? How much of life is really up to unseen circumstances? How much of life is up to chance, possibly to a, a concept called fate? Is life just happening to us and there really is no one in charge. It's all very random and just is what it is. Is God big enough to be in charge of everything? Or just is, is, it, is he generally in charge, but maybe not really mindful of every little circumstance? Maybe God, we can confess, oh sure, he's in charge. But I mean, think of the vastness of the universe. And the microscopic details of life. Can God really be big enough to be in charge of it all? I think if you talk to people about their thinking on this question, you might find them at a varying range, differing positions on this question. But in the book of Ruth, there's no question on how it speaks of the level of God's providential control. I said last week that the... The book of Ruth is this incredible book because, in that it's it's incredible because there's no direct involvement of God in some supernatural way to be found in the whole book. There's and this is in the time of the Judges, right? It says at the beginning of the book of Ruth in the time when the Judges ruled, and you think about all that's going on in this time period and all the supernatural events that are happening. You think about. Gideon and and the fleece you think about all sorts of incredible uh, stories of the conquest of, of of the promised land and they're going in and there'd be they'd go into a battle and God would rain down hailstones on the enemy and the Bible would say that more died from hailstones than the Israelites even had to kill in the conquest of the promised land I mean God was moving in incredibly supernatural ways in this time period but here the book of Ruth comes along And it's all just very normal. It's all just very normal. There's famine. There's death. There's harvest. There's commitment out of Ruth to Naomi. There's welfare programs that we'll get into. She's gleaning in this field as a way to provide for them, though they are destitute. They're without any sort of provision. There's marriage. There's birth. There's all sorts of very naturally occurring events but no, what we would call like direct, supernatural, miraculous involvement by God in this book. And so then does that mean, is God involved in this book at all? Or is this just a narrative alongside of God doing all these amazing things in the Bible, and then here we have a narrative of, well, here's a story that's going alongside, but really God's not directly involved. the book of Ruth has none of those mind-bending supernatural involvements of God. So it seems as though he's not really working in Ruth. This is just happening. But that isn't the case. It brings us to a very important uh, biblical doctrine called providence. The, the providential working of God. Not the city in Rhode Island. Providence as a doctrine. Uh, God's working in the world and uh, in in the folder for uh, in the folder we had a systematic theology a print off from Lewis Burkhoff and his systematic theology on um, just the providence of God and it, this this snippet here just the definition that he gives of providence goes like this it says that providence may be defined as the continued exercise of the divine energy whereby the creator preserves all his creatures is operative in all that comes to pass in the world and directs directs all things to their appointed end. He preserves all his creatures. Is operative in all that comes to pass in this world, and he directs all things to their appointed ends. What we have in the book of Ruth, even without the incredible supernatural workings of God, is the providential working of God, because God has his fingertips in everything. He is he directs all things to their important and their, to their ends, so what I want us to be sure of though before we get into God's providential working on behalf of ruth it's it's essential that we understand Ruth's place within the people of God. It's critical to the narrative you look at the pronouncement from Boaz in Luke cha- or Luke Ruth chapter two verses eleven and twelve Boaz says this about Ruth he says um Boaz answered her. She's, she's wondering why she found favor with Boaz. and Boaz answers her saying, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognizes that Ruth is not a casual follower of Yahweh. She's not a casual follower of God. After the death of her husband, the death of her brother-in-law, the death of her father, Ruth leaves her hometown, clings Naomi, and follows her back to Bethlehem. Well, Why would she do this? As it has been told to, about her to the people of Bethlehem, Ruth has taken refuge. She's coming, coming under the cover of the wings of the God of Israel. She's put herself under the cover of his wings. Now, side note for future sermons in, in the book of Ruth, that's an important concept, coming under the cover of his wings. And we'll see this uh, next chapter. We'll see this phraseology So next Sunday, we'll see the phraseology of coming under his wing come up again. But she has come under the wings of the God of Israel. Why? Well, you'd have to, it it, it must be that back in Moab, when she's introduced to Elimelech, Naomi, and Malon and Kilion, their family, she's told about the God of Israel. She's heard the story of this one true creator God and his people, Israel. She's undoubtedly heard of the kingdom that is coming. I'm sure that Naomi Stanley would have been excited to know that as Genesis 49.10 talks about, that this kingdom, the scepter, is not going to pass away from Judah, which is the, the clan that Elimelech comes from, this line of Judah. So they have this future promise that, someone from their clan is even going to be this forever king for Israel. So they're excited about who God is and his future kingdom. And Ruth undoubtedly has heard this message of this God who is has a people who has covenanted with him. And this God who has worked incredible miracles, has rescued his people out of Egypt, has brought them out of bondage and out of slavery and given them a promised land and and one day a king. I mean she possibly has even, you know, heard back to Genesis 315, where the word comes to comes during the curses actually, that there will be a seed of the woman who though he will be bruised in the heel, he will bruise the head of the serpent. He will give a mortal wound to the serpent. There's a coming conqueror coming to defeat the enemy, to defeat evil, to defeat the, the destroyer, the accuser. And so hearing all of these things, Ruth has placed her life under the wings, under the cover of the God of Israel. Ruth places her hope in this faithful God. Why do I stress that? I stress it because not all things work out for the good of all people there are those who in their rebellion and separation from god all things even the good things that happen in their life will only add to their judgment at the final day for those who have rejected god even and in, in their rebellion even the good things that God does, the the small things that we get of sunlight, it's a beautiful day today, fresh air, water to drink, all of just the, the blessings, just the common grace and blessings that are shared by all of humanity. In their refusal to give thanks to the one true God, it will actually, the good that comes their way will add to their judgment for their rebellion against this good God on the final day. Even the good that comes their way will add to their judgment. However, for those who are God's, for those who are his people, even the, the suffering that they endure, even the suffering will add to their joy in that final day. That's why Paul talks about that this present suffering is, is working for us an eternal weight of glory. So that even those who, are, those who are God's people, even the bad that comes their way, brings them benefit in the final analysis. It will add to their reward in the next life. Ruth is an embodiment of Romans 8.28, talking about that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And Ruth is the embodiment of this reality all things working together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Does that mean all things will go the way they want them to? Does it mean all circumstances will inevitably just be this golden road of glory to glory? No. But the promise is there for those who are His people, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God works them together for His good, and He does it through His providential care. He works all things. But so then how does God do this specifically in our narrative? Where do we see that? Okay, Darren, you're pressing hard on providential control. Where do we see that in the narrative of, of Ruth? Well, the writer of Ruth, he kind of writes it with with some winks. The way that he communicates, it, it's kind of like winking at, at the listener. And if if you were reading this story or um, telling it along in one one little narrative, you would you could you could tell this out loud and give the emphasis in the right way. When when we read in verse three of chapter two, I mean, Ruth is just looking for sustenance. They had this welfare program that basically is what it was that they any grain that would fall those who were not well off. They wanted to gather, they could They could go into fields that were being gleaned and then they would, without penalty, just gather the grain that they wanted, take it home and that was how they were taken care of. They would leave a perimeter around their fields, they would leave standing grain for travelers that were coming by and they got hungry, they could stop and eat. So Ruth knows this is going on, knows this is the case, the harvest is going, she's going to go into a field, she doesn't care which one, she has no like ulterior motive. She just wants food; she just wants to get something to eat for her and Naomi, so she just takes off and she don't know Bethlehem, and according to Naomi, there's no family for them, so she just takes off and goes into a field. Well, how does the writer communicate this to us verse three um she goes out uh Naomi says in verse two she said, "Go my daughter." so she set out verse three and went and gleaned in the field uh in the, in the field after the reapers and She happened. She happened to come to the part of a field belonging to Boaz who was of the clan of Elimelech. She just so happened. Just as chance would have it. I mean, you know, right? Wink, wink, the God of Israel. And you'll see how preposterous this is because of the connection that is made between Ruth and Boaz and the clan of Elimelech. I mean, the, the story... It, it it defies, it defies chance, and that's what the writer is getting at. She just so happened, and not only that, you go to verse four, and, and he says, "And behold, who would show up on the day that Ruth just so happened to enter into this specific field?" I mean, who knows if she'd return there the next day? She might go kick grain there and then go to a different field where they're harvesting the next day. But this day, she just happened to enter into the field of Boaz. And behold, like, well, wouldn't you know? Who shows up? Boaz. Boaz decides to drop by on this day that Ruth just so happens to enter into this field. Of course he did. Of course he did. God was working out his eternal purposes, just doing it through these seemingly ordinary working This providential ordering of all things in the lives of his people. But man, are we pushing that too much? That's the question that we end up kind of feeling. Are we pushing on that too much? Can't it just be coincidence? Does God have that much control? Well, let's see what Jesus thinks. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10. Let's see how much control... Uh, Jesus thinks God has. Matthew chapter 10, pretty famous section from Jesus, but Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, he's just speaking about fear. It's a wonderful passage to read and the whole thing there, but in verse 29 specifically, he's talking about being afraid, but he says in verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? It's just about how... Invaluable, and in, inconsequential sparrows are. Throwaway birds. Are two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Inconsequential sparrows. Yet God knows when a one of them lands on the ground. Verse 30. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows exactly the hairs, upon your head. God, nothing escapes the notice of God. I was sitting carrying the mail today, and I look off to the side, and a little nut hatchet, you know, they, they're the birds that can walk upside down and go down the tree, and had just come down and was picking out a, a, a picking out a walnut. I, think. I couldn't tell what kind of nut it was. It was just kind of, it was just trying to get some food, but God knew exactly. And sparrows are sold for a penny, yet God knows when one of them falls to the ground. He knows what goes on. And that's Jesus' view of God's abilities. He knows all things. He's Not only does he know all things, does he know the hairs on your head, and he, he's aware of a sparrow that falls on the ground, he's also in charge of them. In Ephesians chapter 1, we could go to several places here, but Ephesians chapter 1 just lays it out, I think, in as plain English as we can get. Ephesians Chapter 1, verse 11, Paul writing to the church at Ephesus says, In him, meaning Jesus, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is a truth that Ruth would have been clinging to. She would have known about her God. No doubt she's aware of a story like Joseph. And you can go to the end of the book of Genesis and it's an incredible read. Thinking about the life of Joseph who is sold into slavery by his brothers. They hated him. He was kind of kind of a braggadocious little brat. And so they, they wanted rid of him. He had these incredible dreams from God, <laughs> but he shared him with them in a way that wasn't real kind, and they got sick of him. and they, they sold him off into slavery, and he ends up going into Egypt and becomes a slave in Potiphar's house, and you, you can read the whole story. It's a fascinating story. gets in trouble, gets thrown in jail, interprets dreams, but ends up stuck in jail, but by the end of it, he interprets Pharaoh's dreams, and actually is put second in command to Pharaoh over all of Egypt. He runs the, um, the harvest the grain uh, for the famine that's coming and he becomes the second most powerful man in in the land and that in the region there of Egypt and all of that that area during this incredible famine so powerful that when his brothers and their family back uh, back in Israel run out of food and they need to go get some from Egypt they have to go talk to Joseph but they don't know it's Joseph and so um, they come back, they get food, and, and they they're introduced. But then eventually, uh, Dad dies, and Joseph's brothers are like, "We got no one to protect us. How is Joseph going to handle us? I mean, we sold this guy off into slavery, and now he's the second most powerful person in the world. Um, he's not be happy with us. And what does Joseph say? There, at Genesis, the end of Genesis 50, the last chapter there. He says that you meant this for evil but God meant it for good. This incredible statement about God, though these men were sinning against their brother, they were doing evil and wicked against their brother, wishing him and basically sending him off for dead. They meant it for evil but God meant it for good. God was working his purposes out even through unfathomable difficulties in the life of Joseph for the ultimate good of Joseph, for the ultimate glory of God. But God, though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. He had not lost control. Ruth would have heard this incredible story of Joseph, of a God sovereign over all things, working all things for the ultimate good of his people. And you can trust him. You can trust him. If he is your God, if you are his through faith in Christ, you, like Ruth, can trust him, that God is working all things to his ultimate ends, which is for the good of his people and the glory of his name. She would have heard of Job, likely. Possibly contemporary of Abraham. We're not sure in the timeline of Job, but he would have been a known story, I would think, at this time. Job loses everything and he says, The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And Job's wife comes and is like, Man, curse God and die. This is terrible. And he says, Well, should we receive blessing from the Lord and not also receive? Judgment, not also receive evil, not also receive these these hard things, who receive good, not receive the bad. And the Bible says that in all of these things, Job did not speak evil. He did not speak wrongly of God. And Ruth would have known these things. And in the midst of her hard circumstances is clinging to God. Not only is God ultimately in charge, but he has purposed the ultimate good For his people, not only is it essential that we know and trust God's ultimate control over all things, but also in his unfailing kindness toward those who are his. Get a hint of this at verse 20 of chapter 2 in Ruth. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law when she comes home with all this grain, she says, May he be blessed by the Lord, speaking of Boaz, and then she says, well, we're not sure, is this statement about Boaz or is it about God? But may he, may, may Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And she speaks of this, it's a specific, this, the word there is hesed in the Hebrew. Hesed means steadfast love, uh, unfailing love, loving kindness, faithfulness, all wrapped up in this idea of, of this steadfast love of the Lord. And Naomi is saying, think of all that Naomi's been through. His kindness has not forsaken us. Not only is God in charge of it all, but he's a God who is kind toward his people. Now, you gotta notice, there are moments in the lives of God's people where his kindness seems very far from being put on display. Naomi and Ruth's lives, though blessed with a good harvest right now and an abundant crop from Boaz right now, they are far from stories of God's abundant favor at this point, far from that kind of a story. But their, their story is not over yet. Their story is not over yet. And for all who are God's through Christ, Our story is not over yet either. And in fact, our story isn't even over when this life ends. What are we to do then when the circumstances of our life blinds our eyes to these two realities about the nature and character of God? When our eyes are blinded to God's control and his kindness. What are we to do when God blinds our eyes to that? We are to work hard. At seeing life from the, the hand, from the perspective of the divine author. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary, boy, is a good book, uh, writes a short commentary on Ruth, and I commend it to you. But he says this about the life, uh, seeing things from God's perspective. He says, when we are in this or that situation, Feeling our way in the darkness, not able to see his hand, trace his design, or interpret his purposes, we nevertheless know the kind of thing he does, and we know the kind of God he is. In this way, we learn Isaiah's lesson, Isaiah 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light... Trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. We also know we can trust him because he is the God who has done marvelous things in the lives of very ordinary people. Thus, in scripture, God writes in block capital letters, saying in bold print, God writes in bold print, the principles of his providence So that when he rewrites them in our lives in small, sometimes microscopic writing, we see that he is the same God. He uses the same handwriting and displays the same providential care for our lives as in the lives recorded in Scripture. So I'm going to paint you a little picture here. Use your little imagination. We're going to build a hammock okay now uh, this is a illustration of a thought of creative exercise I, I preached through Ruth I maybe 10 I didn't look it up probably 10 plus years ago now and this is one of the things that that came out of the the going through the book of Ruth that has really stuck with me um, I, I haven't suffered the most of people that I know my family has not suffered the most I Um, and we've been very, God has been very gracious. Uh, but when, when Jana was laying in the hospital and we learned she's got this congenital heart defect and is very sick and we aren't sure if she is going to make it. These are the truths you have to cling to in times like this. When, when your wife goes and to Des Moines for what you think is just the, exploratory kind of procedure and you come home with a cancer diagnosis and you don't know how this is going to turn out. These are the truths you have to cling to in those moments. This is the hammock. We're going to build this hammock. But this is what has this has stuck with me through 10 years. And it's, it's silly and it's whatever. But the truths that are there are huge if you'll hear them and have them and know them as the truths of this God, as He's put Himself on display to be. So this is our our hammock, and it's a, it's a silly acronym. Uh, hammock standing for starting with H, hope-filled assurance in the mystery and majesty of His control and kindness. H A M M O C K, hammock, hope-filled assurance in the mystery and majesty of. His control and kindness. So how does we're gonna build this hammock? Hope filled assurance. Hope-filled. His mystery and the majesty of his control and kindness. But what how does a hammock work? Well, it hangs between two trees, right? You gotta you can't just hammock is not suspended out in midair. We're just oh wrap yourself up in this hammock and pretend like it's okay. Hammocks hang between two trees. What are the two trees? that this hammock of hope-filled assurance and the mystery and majesty of his control and kindness. What are the two trees this is gonna hang between? One tree is the tree of God's sovereignty, his control over all things. Nothing escapes his nothing escapes his attention. Not a there is not a molecule of existence. There is there's no such thing as a rogue molecule. There's no molecule outside of the control of God he is in charge it is what makes him god so it makes him not like us he's in charge of it all the the kings hearts are waters in his hands he directs them as he wants even the even the lot that is cast into the lap is under the control of god tree over here god is in charge god is sovereign god is in control That's not a particular comfort. (laughs) Until you set the other tree of the hammock up. And it is the hammock of God's kindness toward those who are His. On the one hand, God's control. On the other hand, the tree of God's said, Steadfast love, loving kindness, faithfulness to His people. Determining in using His control to work good purposes for his people. In the final analysis, God will be proven to have done ultimate good, all for his ultimate glory. And so we take these two trees, God's control, God's kindness, and in between them we hang our hammock, so that we can live with hope-filled assurance, the mystery and majesty of his control and kindness. And when we're in that hammock, Life comes along and the wind blows, it gets dark out, things start shaking. What do you do when you're stuck in the midst of a situation like Ruth and Naomi? Things have gone terrible, I mean truly terrible. When you get the diagnosis and things have gone horribly wrong, your child is suffering and you, you don't know how you're gonna, if, if this goes bad, how do, you, how do you survive, how do you, I mean, it, we can't. I can't name off all of the the terrors that come to us in this life. But when they come, those who are Christ's, if you have trusted in Him, you reach down to the the rope that goes towards the sovereignty of God, and you remember, we are not dust in the wind. We are not just rolling along. God is in charge. And I'm going to tighten that rope, that end of my hammock. I'm going to pull on that rope and tighten it up. And remember, this world is not meaningless. God is in charge and he has not lost control for a second. And though it may be beyond my understanding what's going on, he's not lost control. You tighten that rope and then you reach up and you grab hold of the rope around the tree of God's kindness, has said his unfailing love for his people, and you cinch that rope down. He's in charge and he cares for his people. And knowing those two big truths, I can rest in the hope-filled assurance. My assurance is not just, okay, I'm sure of it, it's hope-filled. He's going to work good. Hope-filled assurance. in the mystery, I mean, I understand it. It's mystery. But boy, it's going to be majestic. The mystery and majesty of his control and his kindness to his people. Ruth's not done in her need to cling to this reality, to rest in this hammock. She's not done. Next chapter, fourth chapter, we're going to see there's more she's going to go through. That's coming in the next few weeks she's not done clinging neither are we just as we're not done clinging to those realities God is not done working out those realities either there are incredible events yet to occur in this book of Ruth about God's control and kindness a census you can think hundreds of years later census is going to be decreed going to push Mary and Joseph back to Bethlehem for the birth of their child who they will name Jesus because he will save his people from their sin. Was that accident or was God working his providence through all of these things? When that child has grown up, men will commit the incredible, unthinkable sin of murdering a truly innocent man who had done zero wrong ever and they're going to murder him and as Acts tells us, Peter in his sermon, it was according to their, their, they decreed it. He's killed under the hand of Pilate, but according to the plan and purpose of God. God providentially working all things out for the good of his people, even in the toughest of circumstances. How can we possibly think that our lives would be any different when the storms of life wrap you up and blow you around in your hammock, reach for the string that ties you to the truth of God's control and cinch it down tightly and grab hold of the rope that clings to the tree that God is faithful. God is kind and good and his unfailing love, his Love will never fail his people. Psalm 910 is my favorite verse. Is that those who know your name, Lord, trust in you, for you have not forsaken those who seek you. His kindness never ends. Unfailing love for his people. You cinch that down and then you rest in the hope-filled assurance, in the mystery and majesty of his control and kindness, to work all things to their appointed ends for the good of his people, for the glory of his name. Trusting that God, you cling to them, trusting that God will bring all things to their perfect, appointed, good for us, and glorifying to him ends. Let's pray. Father, help us. as I think about all the ears that something like this might reach, there are so many going through incredibly difficult times. And none of us knows what incredibly tough times we have in our future. I don't know if I've got one more day, another year, 10 years, 20 years, 40, 50 years. I don't know what I have in front of me either. None of us knows. We cannot see the future but we can be assured of some things we can know some things we can know the character and nature of our god who is in charge of all things and whose loving kindness will not fail His people so god i pray that you would work that truth deep into our hearts That we would cinch down that rope of your sovereignty cinch down the rope of your kindness towards your people and rest in all that you are for us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has made all of this possible by dying on the cross, forgiving us of our sins, bringing us into your family by the adoption that comes through faith in Christ, the justification that is there. We thank you for that adoption. That then guarantee that as your people, we can rest in all that you are for us. Help us, God, to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.